There's a verse in the book of Jeremiah I'm going to start with. Chapter 50, verse number 20. Off and on for about two months we've been speaking on the topic of forgiveness. And tonight I'm going to share some thoughts on the purpose of forgiveness. Why does God offer us forgiveness? The purpose of it. Chapter 50 of Jeremiah, verse number 20. Listen to these words. It says, In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. Search will be made for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. That is a great verse. In those days, people are going to come hunting and looking for your sins and your iniquities. And the wonderful announcement is made. God has so well hidden them that nobody will ever find them. Come on. Is that good news or what? Is that good news? In that day, search will be made. People will be looking for your sins, looking for their iniquities, but they won't be able to find them any because God makes the pronouncement, I will pardon them. They're not in the record book. And nobody can find them. To be forgiven, I think you and I are discovering, is a wonderful thing. Just imagine that nobody can ever find your past sins no matter how hard and how far they search. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? None of us, I suppose, can fully fathom the joy. We can enjoy it, but understand it is another thing. Can we fully fathom the joy of being forgiven, especially after it has been revealed what our unredeemed human heart looked like to begin with? That He's forgiven us. It's wiped clean, and nobody can find it. That's a shouting thing, that is. That's worth shouting about. It really is. And we've looked in weeks past at many of the illustrations of the truth of forgiveness. and Just quickly, a few more pictures of what it means to be forgiven. It's an amazing thing. In the Old Testament, there's lots of pictures for sure in the Tabernacle of Moses gives us a lot of illustrations and a lot of pictures of what forgiveness means. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 is a familiar enough verse, though a lot of people don't actually read Leviticus. Uh, But there's a verse there that's familiar enough in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. It says, the life of the flesh is in the, the blood. And when the blood is shed, it serves as an atonement for our sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood, 
and shed blood serves as an atonement. I've got good news for you. The lifeblood of Jesus has been shed on your behalf. When it says atonement, what that word means in modern English, it's actually three words. In English, it's three words. Three words. Atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. You can do it A-T, then leave a space. O-N-E, leave a space, and M-E-N-T, at one meant. And what it means is two opposites. Through the sacrifice of the blood, the two are now at one. And that's what the word atonement means. It means to cover. I like this one. It means to put out of sight. How many are glad God's put your past out of sight? Anybody? Amazing. It's been put out of sight. That's Leviticus 17. Back in Leviticus chapter 16, you have the the famous event ritual called the Day of Atonement, which took place once a year. And that was to put away the sin of the nation. It was to cleanse the temple, cleanse the tabernacle. And I'm not going to go through the whole process because it's quite an elaborate story of everything that took place on that Day of Atonement. But one interesting part I'd like to bring to your attention is that the high priest on behalf of the people would make a sacrifice. But this was kind of like a double sacrifice. There were two goats. And there's a reason that there are two goats here. There are two goats. And one goat would be sacrificed. Would be, would, its blood would be shed. And the blood would be taken into the the uh, Ark of the Covenant in, in the Holy of Holies and the, and the blood would be sprinkled on different places throughout the tabernacle and the shed blood covers the sin of the people. The blood of the innocent covers the life of the sinner and the penalty of sin has been paid. That's goat number one. But that's not the whole story. There's goat number two as well. And when the high priest would come out Uh, And he takes a hold of this second goat. If you could read this in the Hebrew language, it says, in the King James Bible, says he would lay his hands on that second goat. They gave that goat a name, uh, scapegoat. Ever heard that phrase before? Now, if you're going to make somebody a scapegoat, what are you doing? You're going to lay all your blame on the other, the scapegoat. There's a smart looking man I ever saw one walking in. A scapegoat. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what he would do, if you could read it in the Hebrew, it doesn't just say he laid his hands on that scapegoat. It actually says he, if you read in the Hebrew, he pressed his hands on it. I mean, it was a firm. Push, not just a light touch, but a firm push on the head of that goat. I'm sure the goat felt very uncomfortable, especially probably knowing what happened to the first goat. You know, but pressing his hands on that goat. And when he did what he was doing, he was confessing the sins of the nation. And there was a transfer from the nation to that scapegoat. Why? Because the first goat that had been killed and slaughtered, the blood was shed, means the penalty has been paid. And so now we're symbolically going to show a transference 
of guilt. I like that. And then after the high priest had done that, there was a specific man who was assigned a specific job to do with that scapegoat, that second goat. And what he was to do was to lead that second goat who now carries the sin of the nation out into the uninhabitable wilderness to lose him in the desert. So that he was supposed to confuse the goat so much and take him so far out that that goat wouldn't have a clue how to get back to the camp. And there is a picture that not only has your sin been forgiven you because of the blood of the first goat, but that sin has actually been removed from you as well and has taken away to a place where it will never come back to find you. Now that is good news. In the tradition of of the nation of Israel, what they used to do, just to make sure that goat never did find its way back, they usually let it over a cliff. And will let it fall to its death, just to ensure that your sin would never come back to haunt you again. That's good news. Your past, like it says in Jeremiah, people will be trying to look for your past for your sins and for iniquities, and they will make diligent search, but they can't find it. Because God has pardoned us. Folks, it's a good thing to be forgiven. There's another interesting picture in in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And and Jesus referred to the story when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He makes reference to this event back in Numbers chapter 21. Can you just imagine this? God's people were complaining. You can't imagine that, can you? That there was grumbling and there was murmuring and there was complaining out there in the wilderness. Hard to believe that God's people would do that, isn't it? And how many times they had done this, I I think if my memory serves me right, it might be wrong, but this is the 14th time it says that they murmured against the Lord and they murmured against Moses. And what happened here is fiery serpents began to appear. And those fiery serpents began to bite the complainers. So don't complain, all right? came against the murmurers and the complainers, began to bite them, and many people died as a result. In the face of such affliction, the people quickly called out to God. They repented and they cried out to Moses, cried out to God. But as they repented, the Lord gave a solution. He said to Moses, make an image of one of those fiery serpents. Put it on top of a pole And the fact is this, that whoever will look upon that fiery serpent on the top of the pole will not die, but live. Jesus used that story talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, I must be lifted up. And whoever will look to me will not die, but he will live. This is an excellent picture of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Because as Jesus took up the cross, 
He took on the image of our sinfulness and he became a curse for us. But whoever would lift up their eyes to the provision that God has provided will soon discover that their sins are lifted from them. Thank God for that. I mean, there's numerous pictures in the Old Testament and the New, numerous pictures of of what it's like to be forgiven. But instead of looking at some of those pictures, because we've done that in weeks past already, what we want to do is ask this question, why does God forgive us? What is the purpose of being forgiven? You might think, well, that's obvious. (laughs) We all need deliverance. We all need forgiveness. But I want to look at some of the, the reasons why you and I must experience forgiveness. Reason number one is you need to be delivered from guilt. Living a guilt-free life is wonderful. You need guilt to be removed from your conscience. When you and I repent, we give God the opportunity to transform our lives. But you know what sin has done to us? Sin has caused you and I to lose our innocence. Sin has caused you and I to lose our purity. I remember going to different cultures, you know, in my travels. And I I remember meeting a lot of university students from China. You know, who'd be in their in their twenties, who did not grow up in Western culture, but rather grew up in communism, in China, and they're out of China, going elsewhere in Europe uh, to to their universities and so on, and they never experienced the Western culture before. And what really impressed me about the Chinese is that they are actually quite innocent. Whereas over here, our youth are quite exposed to everything. At least under communism, they weren't exposed to it. And, and what really struck me was the innocence. That you could be in your mid-20s, you could be 23, 24, 25, and never taste temptation, never taste... Uh, that, that's not, of course, they would experience temptation, but, but never taste the onslaught of what people here just take for granted in everyday life and not be marred by it. It was quite a thing. And when you see that kind of thing, and you come back to cultures such as our own, and we see how people are so exposed to so everything on television, on the internet, and on the computers, and in the school system, and so on, so on, the fact is, we're a generation that has lost its innocence. Isn't that right? We've lost our innocence. You know, and you learn far too much about things you should never learn about far too young. You know, but sin causes us to lose our purity, and sin causes us to lose our, our innocence. And instead of being innocent people, we're people who carry guilt, and guilt will radically transform a person's life. We often talk of how grace should transform our lives. But do we understand how much guilt has transformed us? If we are people who walk around with guilt, you can't enjoy your life. And that's the truth. If you're walking around with guilt, you can't enjoy your life. Instead, you endure your life instead of enjoy it. You can't savor 
life and you are mercilessly driven and you're always looking over your shoulder if you have guilt to see when something from the past is going to catch up with you. And you always have that nervousness about your life that some way the past is going to catch up with you. The fact is this, I would say that guilt is a dangerous force that ruins your life more than cancer destroys physical bodies. Just as cancer will destroy a physical body, guilt ravishes a person's life in even a more devastating way. Uh, If you walk with guilt, you're haunted by your past because one day that past is going to catch up to you. And it's not good to live with guilt. You and I need deliverance from guilt. We've only got a short life on this earth and we can't enjoy it if we live with a sense of constant guilt. And I'll tell you this, the world has no solution to deal with guilt. It doesn't exist in the world. You take professional psychiatric help out there, and the kind of advice you're going to get to deal with guilt is this. Lower your standards so you don't have to deal with a failure to live up to them. That's professional counsel in the world. Lower your standards so you don't feel guilty when you don't measure up to them. It doesn't work. And because some people are riddled with guilt, some actually take the route of suicide. Other people drown themselves in their alcohol or the drugs. Or other people do other things like immerse themselves in hobbies. And you want to excel, especially in sports. You're going to do the best you can and be the world's best simply because your life needs to be driven by something to drown out the sense of guilt. Nobody wants to be confronted with the guilt that they have. But I've got good news for you. I hope you realize the gospel is good news. There is a solution to get rid of guilt. Amen. Are you with me? There is a solution to get rid of guilt. The human conscience can actually be purged from guilt. Hebrews 9.14 How much more the blood of Christ can purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All the world can tell you is this, is change your attitude towards what you have done. The world would say, just lower your standards so you don't set yourselves up for fail and incur more guilt. But the gospel is this. We have been offered the remission of our sins. There is an atonement. And there is complete victory in Christ. Amen. No matter what a person might have done, the truth is, there is full deliverance from guilt, your past doesn't have to haunt you and follow you around. It's never going to catch up with you because God puts guilt under the blood. God's purpose in forgiving you is to remove from your life the sense of guilt. And if you have freedom from guilt, you can enjoy your life. That's one of the reasons why God forgives you, is to deal with the issue of guilt. So you're never haunted by it. 
Another reason forgiveness is necessary, reason number two, is that we have to be delivered from what I'm going to call a siege mentality. A siege mentality. It's one thing to know for someone to tell you that you are free, but it's quite sometimes another thing for a person to be free mentally. Isn't that the truth? You need to be free mentally. Mentally, a lot of people remain in prison and walk in a sense of shame, even though they're forgiven people. And they walk in a sense of shame. As we can see in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of Israel. Isn't that the truth? And it's one thing for people to to say a sinner's prayer. It's one thing for people to believe on Christ. Sometimes it's another matter for them to get it in their head, what has actually happened, and that they are are free. I thank God that Romans 6.14 declares, Sin shall not have dominion over us. Isn't that good news? Sin shall not have dominion over us. But too many people who know that they have been forgiven of their sin, <coughs> excuse me, nevertheless, they live a life of being in retreat because they have a poor self-image based upon a past that no longer exists. Now, should I say that again? People know that you're forgiven. If I was to ask every believer in this room tonight, do you know that you're forgiven? And you would all say, yes, we know all that. That's basic stuff. That's basic gospel. But the fact is, there are a lot of people who tend to retreat from living life to the full because they carry around a poor self-image based upon a past that no longer exists. Okay, a third time. This could be a short sermon or a long sermon. That's up to you. It's up to you. I want to know that you heard the point. Before we move on, I want to know that it's sunk into you. So I'll say it again. Too many believers know that they have been forgiven of their sin, but nevertheless they retreat from living a full life because they carry around a poor self-image based upon their past that no longer exists. I see that hand back there. Hallelujah. The past doesn't exist. It's non-existent. Don't let that frame what your self-image is. Didn't we read in Jeremiah, people are going to be hunting for it and they'll never find it. The only place it exists is in your memory banks. Hallelujah. People are forgiven... But they live in shame of their past. They haven't learned to put their shame away. And even though they know they're forgiven, they tend to live with their hang, hanging their heads over their past. And they never get involved in pressing into the abundance 
of life that God has for them. And that's the truth. That is the truth. Some people will never get close to an unsaved person because, oh, it might be affected by them. And so therefore, to be holy, they have to separate themselves. They don't understand separation, and they've substituted a new word. They call it separation, but in really they're practicing isolation. They're really practicing isolation, not separation. But when you're forgiven, and you know you're forgiven, and you know your past is put away, and you know your guilt is removed, they are the ones who are going to be infected by us. Not the other way around. If there's a contest between light and darkness, I can tell you, 100% of the time, light always wins. You've never yet seen darkness overtake the light unless God does it as a judgment. Light always wins. But some people are scared to be free. That's an amazing thought. Scared of freedom. Thank you, sir. Um, Some people have been used to guilt for so long that they spend their entire life in retreat mode. They never really blossom in what God has for their lives because you've made a choice to live in a protective custody where I never have to deal with the shame of my past. It doesn't even exist, but you're trying to insulate yourself against it anyway. And you live in a protective custody and you put yourself in a life that's far beneath your calling and far beneath your anointing. It's almost as if people say, as long as I don't venture out, I'll be safe. And yet, how many know the Lord's going to beckon you out of your comfort zone? But if I never venture out, I'll be safe. And just, I actually, my, I, I retreat into my own little world, and I actually made it quite comfortable. I fixed it up quite nice, you know. Let me show you my own little world. I put carpets on the floor. I got curtains on the windows. Uh, their furniture is nice, and I live in my private little world, and I never have to confront my fears. It's kind of nice in there. Some people will never pray in public. Some people will never open their mouth to prophesy. Never. And I ask the question, why do you live in retreat? What do you think is going to happen if you venture out of your private little world? What We need to be delivered from that. God's got a much bigger picture than our own private little worlds. We are forgiven people. We must choose to live like it. Amen? The shame of the past is not to haunt you. What do you think is going to happen if you venture out your own private little world? Maybe you have this, this image that if you get out of your little comfort zone, there are lions out there ready to take you. Matter of fact, if you listen, you can hear them roar. When you think about it, you can hear them roar out there and you said, if I step outside of my comfort zone, I know those lions will pounce on me and devour me. I can even hear them roar. What stops people from getting out their comfort zone? You know what it is? It's guilt or it's shame of their past. It keeps a lot of people in their prison. 
But when you get out of that retreat position, you'll make a discovery. There are no lions. What there is, is a tape recording hooked up to a PA system, and you're hearing roars, but it's all a lie. And that is the truth. It's all a lie. There are no lions. All that exists is a bunch of lies. People are held captive by non-existent forces. Isn't that the truth? You know, a simple lie causes people to live with a siege mentality, causes them to retreat into a self-imposed exile instead of enjoying the excitement of being free. It's good to be free. Now, I think the reason a lot of people live like that is because they think they're bigger than God. Now, what do I mean by that? God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself for your past. And you punish yourself for your past by living in a private little world that never deals with it. So I have a question. How did you get bigger than God? If God says, I can't even find your sin, who are you to keep it? Now, isn't that a true statement? Isn't, people can't forgive themselves. They place their judgment on their lives above the judgment of God. If God has forgiven us, who are we to not forgive ourselves? If God has removed the guilt, who are we to impose that guilt upon ourselves? If God beckons us to live in freedom, who are we to put ourselves in self-exile? Are we greater than God? Have we become the Supreme Court that even overrides God's judgment? It's a good question, isn't it? Do we overrule, overrule the verdict? God says we've forgiven. We are forgiven. How dare we overrule that? By not forgiving ourselves. I've got good news for you. In case you didn't know it, Prophet Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says, God has placed your sins in the sea of forgetfulness. Amen. Now, Satan can't stop God from forgiving us, but Satan seems to have the ability to get believers not forgiving themselves, not living in that forgiveness. So people allow themselves to be taken captive by things that don't even exist anymore. The lions don't even exist out there. It's all a lie. And your sins don't exist anymore. They're removed. Isn't that good news? Do you remember in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 6, do you remember that story uh, when Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember that? And it was along with the Philistines for a while. And after several months, the Philistines said, we can't handle this Ark, and they sent it back to Israel on the cart. Do you remember that story? And you remember that the, the, the oxen just happened to take the, the cart with the Ark on it into a little village called Beth Shemesh, which is full of, of priests. Curiosity killed more than the cat. They wanted to take a look inside the Ark of the Covenant, which they shouldn't have done. And when they opened it up and looked inside it, well, I don't want to tell you the story because a lot of 50,000 people died as a result. 
But there's a point to it. Don't you be opening up what God has closed. Don't you be uncovering what the blood has covered. You're forgiven. Hallelujah. We are forgiven. That's good news. So, it's true that you and I remember what God has forgotten. But since you and I want to hang on to the memory, even though God's forgotten it, um, it should serve as a deterrent for us not to keep repeating the sin. But the enemy likes to come and remind you of all those memories. And it's for the purpose of filling you with guilt and with shame so that you will live the rest of your life not enjoying life, but living in a self-imposed retreat and exile. He will fill you with those memories with false emotions. It's not godly sorrow, it's condemnation. But I've got good news for you. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. If you were a Greek scholar, you would realize that when it says no condemnation, it has the power of saying not even a shred of evidence. Not a trace of condemnation. You see, Satan, according to Revelation 12.10, is the accuser of the brethren. Anybody ever hear his voice? The accuser of the brethren. And you know... And I know that we're all guilty of, of sin. But listen, accusation is not the same as condemnation. He has the ability to accuse, but he hasn't got the power to condemn. And there's a big difference between the two. You see, like if you were speeding down the motorway, nobody does that, right? If you were speeding down the motorway and the policeman comes behind you and stops you and issues you a ticket, you have been accused of breaking the law. But do you understand that the policeman hasn't got the power to condemn you? He can accuse you, but only the judge can pass sentence, not the policeman. If you want to argue the case, you can take it to court. And you can argue the case. The policeman hasn't got the power to pass sentence. He's only got the power to accuse. I've got good news for you. Satan, he may be the accuser of their brethren, but he hasn't got the authority to pass sentence. Amen. That's good news. As a matter of fact, devil, let me tell you something. My case has gone to court. I have an attorney. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I've got news for you. His blood is my intercession at the right hand of the Father. And my case has been taken to court. And the judgment has been passed. And the judgment says, as much as you accuse me, the judge says, no condemnation. That's good news. That is worth shouting about. So we're free. That being the case, one of the purposes of being forgiven is to deliver you from living your life in retreat. A self-imposed exile based upon shame of a past 
that doesn't even exist. Hallelujah. So therefore, I urge you, would you please live life to the fullest. And explore God to the fullest. And take those steps of faith. And get out of your comfort zone. And get out of the boat. And start walking in water when He tells you to come. And open your mouth. And pray. And prophesy. And give yourself. And don't hide yourself in retreat. You're forgiven. Don't let a past that doesn't exist hold you back. Amen. You are forgiven. A third reason why people are, God forgives us, is so that you can be His son, you can be His daughter, and you can be holy and without blame. Now that's good news. Blameless. Anybody here blameless? Anybody here blameless? Listen to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.8 Who shall confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Second Peter 3.14, listen to it. Wherefore, beloved, seeing you look for these things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. You're blameless. Hallelujah, you're blameless. Is that too good to be true? You see, well, blameless, I know I committed sin. I know I did wrong. How could I be blameless? Here you are, superseding God's judgment again. Blameless. How can that be? Well, first of all, forgiveness makes you a son and a daughter of Almighty God. Hallelujah. And because He is our Heavenly Father... He assumes responsibility for us and He's taken care of it. He has settled our accounts. Hallelujah. Any of you parents ever have to dig your children out of trouble? Ever? They're all perfectly behaved, right? You know, the thing is because you acted on their behalf, they come out blameless because you took care of it. Our Heavenly Father has taken care of it. You are blameless. That's good. The fourth reason, this is the last one. I think this is the bestest for last. Why does God forgive? The fourth reason is because forgiveness reveals the heart of who God is. It's His nature. How many times will I quote Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7? When Moses said, show me your glory, he said, okay, puts him in the cleft of the rock, and all the glory passes by, proclaims the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, abundant in goodness, mercy and truth, keeping mercy for generations, forgiving iniquity, and sin. That is the heart and that is the nature of God. There's no doubt that you and I have sinned. There's no doubt that all of us have violated 
all sense of morality. When the children of Israel created the golden calf at the time of Exodus, you know, Moses had to uh, plead on their behalf with God. And I like what Moses said to God. He says, God, you can't do that because your reputation's at stake. Do you realize what the world is going to say if you just wipe them all out in the desert? You're going to say, what kind of a God is that? He teased them, he promised them freedom, and took them out, and once he got them out, he killed them all. What kind of a reputation is that God? Do you really want that reputation? God says, Moses, you're right. No, I won't do it. And then he has a revelation that he is a forgiving God. See, Moses knew that about God, that God's nature is mercy over judgment. That God's nature is forgiving. Do you remember in Numbers chapter 14, when they got to the edge of the promised land, you remember this story, and they sent in the 12 spies, and 10 came back with a negative report. And that upset God. That disturbed him. God, you know, in human terms, it would be like God said this, after all I've done for those people, after all the provision I've given them, after all the manna in the wilderness, after all the perfect health they've lived in, after all the time their shoes never wore out and their clothes never wore out, after all the mercies I've given them, 40 years of it, and then they turn around and say, we can't do it because we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Do they not know anything about me? Moses, if that's how they're going to respond... To me, tell you what, I'll do away with them and we'll start maybe with Moses with yourself. Now Moses cries out to God and he pleaded with God for the people. But listen to this. He pleaded God's reputation. Not the need of the people, but the reputation of God. And he said, God, you can't do that because again, your reputation is at stake. And what God did is he listened to the prayer of Moses because Moses hit his heart. Moses hit his heart. God indeed pardoned all the people for his own sake. And then he made the promise that in spite of all the sinfulness of man, he said, yet my glory will fill all the earth. Amen. My glory will fill all the earth. And God pardoned the people because of his own sake. For instance, when King David had sinned, how many know that King David would sin from time to time? When he sinned and he asked for forgiveness, he never went to God and said, well, you need to forgive me because after all, I am the king. He didn't plead his position. He didn't plead his past greatness with God, and nor did he plead even his own personal urgent need. As he prayed, he said, God, pardon me for your own name's sake, because this is your nature. You have to work in accordance with what your nature is. So pardon me for your own name's sake. Listen to Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For your own sake. In accordance with your own character. David had learned that it's God's nature to love the sinner. And it's God's nature to pardon sin. So David was simply asking God, would you just be yourself? And forgive. 
for your own sake. Daniel the prophet understood the same thing. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 19, Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah and he discovered that there were 70 years of exile and Daniel could compute and he says, well I'm living right at the 70th year and he began to pray and he began to confess the sins of the nation and he began to intercede for God to make good on his promises But when he says, confesses the sin of the nation, he says this in Daniel 9, verse 19. Listen to this. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and act. Delay not for your own sake. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because this city and your people are called by your name. And so the forgiveness of the nation for what they had done was based upon God's own nature. For your own sake, do it. One more scripture. Jeremiah knew the same truth. The book of Lamentations is a hard book to read. Not not everybody just goes to Lamentations for your devotionals. But in the middle of the book, there's a powerful scripture. And you know it because there's a hymn based upon it. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. It says, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is your faithfulness you know the old hymn don't you great is your faithfulness forgiveness is the very nature of God forgiveness allows God to manifest his loving kindness his tender mercy And by forgiving, he declares, he demonstrates, and he dispenses his glory even to people like you and me. This is why God is quick to forgive. It's his nature. It's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Why does he forgive us? Deliver us from guilt. Why does he forgive us? Deliver us from our self-imposed exiles. Why does He forgive us? So that we can be blameless as His sons and His daughters. Why does He forgive us? Because He can do no other. Because that's His nature. So that's why God is a forgiving God. And He's worthy to be praised.